Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The night chairs are designed for professional journalists who have been working in the field to come into academia. And every other chair before me, who also happened to be white, received that position with tenure. I it had never that. been denied. No one had never. ever been denied tenure before. Exactly. And I went through the tenure process and I received the unanimous approval of the faculty uh, to be granted tenure. And so to be denied it and to only have that vote occur on the last possible day, at the last possible moment, after threat of legal action, after weeks of protest, after it became a national scandal, it's just not something that I want anymore. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. That was journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones speaking with Gail King on CBS This Morning. Today, a few of our favorite professors join me for a roundtable discussion on higher education, critical race theory, voting rights, and the Olympics. Dr. Leah wright Rigur is associate research professor at the SNF Agora Institute and the Department of History at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Niambi Carter is associate professor of political science at Howard University. And Dr. Jonathan Wharton is associate professor of political science at Southern Connecticut State University. He's also associate dean of the School of Graduate and Professional Studies. What's often missing from the discussion about Nicole Hannah-Jones is how tenure decisions are made at universities. As we heard, the tenure committee recommended Hannah-Jones, but the board of trustees rejected that decision. It's their right to do so, but it raises the question of why they made the decision and how some donors may have influenced it. Ask Leah wright about her reaction to the case and what it says more broadly about decision-making in academia. It says a lot about the decision-making process and the way that academia functions, particularly in relationship to Black people, but especially, this is especially poignant for me as a Black woman. Um, and I think we can look at the numbers and you know, I'm, I'm happy to get the like precise data up there, but they're horrific when it comes to not just tenuring Black women, Right. The numbers are in the single digits, if even that it might even be half a digit. Um, But it's also, I think, uh, pretty horrific when we look at the number of full professors. Right. So there's a difference. Many people don't realize that there's a difference between an associate professor, which is the first level of tenure, and that there is another level uh, after with a full professor. So the number of black women that are full professors is, you know, at this point, uh, closer to mythology than reality. And so part of, I think what we, part of what we are seeing play out is all of those kind of invisible politics that a lot of us know about that exist behind the scenes in terms of how tenure is decided. Um, And then the other part that I really want to stress here is a lot of times people, and and Nicole Hannah-Jones didn't mention this in her letter that she issued after she declined um, North Carolina's uh, offer to final tenure offer. But one of the things that we know is that we're, uh, this, this process is often touted as a meritocracy, right? So if you do the work, if you show that you're the best, if you excel, oftentimes the categories are defined as excellence, right? So excellence in collegiality, excellence in service, excellence in scholarship, excellence in you know, public, uh, public engagement, that if you show these things, then you'll be a slam dunk when it comes to tenure. But what we all know 
is that that's not true at all. That meritocracy is actually not the standard by which standard, uh, by which tenure is decided. What's different about the UNC case is that it was a public institution, thereby meriting further inquiry, right, and allowing for further inquiry into the standards by which they did not, in this case, denied Nicole Hannah-Jones tenure. And I think one of the things came out that ultimately this wasn't about meritocracy. This wasn't about standards of excellence, because again, as has been said over and over again, this is a woman who has the Pulitzer Prize. She has a MacArthur Jr. grant. She's won multiple Peabody Awards. If there is a award for journalism and for writing, she has won it. So it's not about meritocracy. Instead, it became about controversy and it became about the role that donors play in public university decisions surrounding tenure. So I think re in the reality of all of this is that it exposed quite prominently how politics play an important role in determining who gets tenure at universities, both public and private, and how that affects uh, how that affects Black people in the uh, in ac uh, academia. Niambi, many people treat Nicole Hannah-Jones as if she's some unicorn, as if this is a rare case that people are shocked and outraged by. But we all know that this is much more common than that public discussion would lead us to believe. I want to share this passage from Nicole Hannah-Jones' letter when she said to UNC after its second decision to tenure her about why she chose not to go. And she writes, at some point when you have proven yourself and fought your way into institutions that were not built for you, when you've proven you can compete and excel at the highest level, you have to decide that you are done forcing yourself in. What does that statement mean to you? I mean, I think it, it, it reflects a lot of what many of us have felt, particularly those of us who've been in PWIs and maybe made a transition to HBCUs um, or vice versa, which is, you know, many times when you're in these environments, the standard by which you're evaluated, right, your teaching evaluations and all these other things are kind of what is used as a metric for whether you would move on to these faculty ranks. But we also know that there are these other things like fit and all these other sort of nebulous categories, or we already have a person do this. We don't need another person to do this. Although we know we can be in departments with five Congress scholars, right? We can have five scholars of, um, you know, other kinds of institutions or the presidency, but you know, you can only have one person who does this kind of work. And I think what it speaks to is to sort of general frustration, right? That these institutions claim that they want us to be here. They claim that there are these open environments, but they have all of these sort of practices that allow these kinds of subjective measures in individuals who quite frankly, in many cases, don't think you should be there or don't think you have the qualifications, right? To kind of ride roughshod because it's such a nebulous process, this tenure thing um, and how these jobs work. So I think what Hannah Jones was expressing was, look, I have the capital, right? And the resources to not have to stay here because the validation sort of after the fact was sort of too high a price to pay, right? Too high a price to pay. It was time to sort of say, I have done everything I can and if these people don't value me, and it's clear it was not at the departmental level or the college level, but at the university level, right, which is talking about these layers, um, that you don't want me here. So I'm going to actually go someplace where I am wanted, where I am valued, where, you know, there are already people who believe in what I do. 
that it doesn't have to be this case that I have to again say, and I have a Pulitzer, and I have a MacArthur Junior Grant, Genius Grant, and I've done all of these things to prove to people yet again why you deserve to be here. I mean, quite frankly, she would have probably been the most decorated person in that journalism school anywhere, right? Not just at UNC, but anywhere. And to still have to come in with this idea that somehow you're deficient. And I think that's what many of us fight when we go into these departments and in these classrooms where students say things about the way we look or our professionalism or critique our approach, right? If it's not what they expect and have the additional burden of having those very students at the undergraduate and graduate levels who are feeling that same pinch at the institution and come to you for guidance. And none of that is ever taken into account when we are evaluated um, and when we are considered for tenure and other kinds of promotions. So I think that's what she was getting to. Jonathan, this is happening at a time when over the last year, in the wake of these racial reckonings, we've seen increased demands from students to diversify their faculty. They want people in the classroom who will challenge them or will expose them to different things. But what Niambi is saying is that it's not enough to get people in the door. So there was a challenge even getting Nicole Hannah-Jones in the door. There's also the challenge of keeping people there and creating an environment where people feel valued and affirmed so that they want to stay. And yet this happened as faculty, staff, students, and alumni were demanding a different outcome. What is the pressure that you feel to address these demands to change institutions? You're not only a tenured associate professor, you're also now working in administration where you're at that level where some of these decisions are made. Do you feel pressure to change the institution or is it a recognition that I'm here to do my job, institutions can persist? It's a little bit of both. Um, and you're right. I mean, now that I'm associate dean of the, of the graduate school at Southern, uh, you know, it's been told to me a few times, in fact, that, uh, you know, I stand out as an African-American and even as a male um, to be in this position in the first place. And the interesting twist in this is that, you know, I, I've had to hear this from black men who actually brought it out to me. Um, and it's not so much that I overlooked it and didn't think of it. Um, it was just that when we put things in perspective, right, there are few people of color, let alone African-Americans, in, in my position, even in a place like Southern. And yet Southern, as we know, is also a public university. It's a regional university. It's a teaching university, however. So there should be this expectation that we're going to see more diversity, even in a place like Southern. But in fact, when we look at our numbers, it, it's rather dwindling um, because uh, I was actually involved with this in a committee where we examined uh, some of the data that, in fact, our numbers are higher in terms of percentage of African-American uh, professors who at least are on the tenure track or who are tenured in most colleges. Um, if I remember correctly, was it around six or seven percent? It's actually double the number than Yale University, which says a lot. But yet we know the numbers can be higher, right? And then if you look at the numbers, even for Asians, it, it tends to be double that number in most places, sometimes even triple. So it, when you look at this in terms of tenure, tenure track, let alone even administration, we're not there. It's one thing to recruit. It's quite another to retain. And actually, one of the people that I've worked with on, on this with the committee actually told me, you know, when you initially came into Southern, you weren't just the only African-American male. In fact, there were three others, but you're the only one who stayed at Southern because most of them left Connecticut altogether. And she said, what is your secret? Well, I said, I'm a native son. You know, a lot of people don't want to. <laughs> it's not so much Southern. It's more how many people want to be in an academic environment? How many people want to be in Connecticut, right? Because this is supposed to be the cradle, you know, knowing one of of liberalism, idealism, but it's not exactly for everyone. 
And so we have to put some perspective in terms of certainly the university, but also location and retention. Some of these factors really should stand out for, for most of us in academia. And I think we know this and being a part of this, uh, this space called academia. Niambi Nicole Hannah-Jones has decided to take her talents and her treasure to Howard University in Washington, D.C., where you are a professor and Jonathan is an alum of Howard. I have to make that point early on in our discussion. What's the reaction and the conversation that you're hearing from your colleagues and from students and alumni at Howard that is called the Mecca? Well, it is. It is the Mecca for a reason. I think for a lot of people, I think it was, you know, a boon for Howard, for sure. And I think um, to some extent, it's, it's, you know, it's sad to say, I think for some who had never thought about a Howard University, it affirmed something about our worthiness, which is this university has been around since 1867. We've been worthy for a century plus, right? We have been educating um, tons of people, right? Um whether you're talking about arts or letters or whatever, you know, Howard University has been a beacon, but so have many other HBCUs. And I, I hope this doesn't become a conversation, one, about sort of how we're being at a deficit in Nicole Hannah-Jones and ta Coates making it this great place. It's been a great place for a really long time. But I also hope it doesn't just become a conversation about Howard. Um, because there are a lot of HBCUs, smaller ones that we don't talk about. I mean, we sort of talk about the big ones, Howard, Morehouse, Spelman. I mean, but there are a lot of great HBCUs out there. Johnson C. Smith, North Carolina A&T, Tuskegee, Fisk, right, that are doing, I mean, we are really educating a cadre of Black professionals. That is what we do. And we've done it with little to no notice, right? Um, I think both of um, Ta-Nehisi Coates and Nicole Hannah-Jones will be energized as energized by the environment as the environment is to have them there. I mean, so we're welcoming them to join what we're already doing. I mean, there are a lot of great things that are happening on campus. And it's really, you know, I think a credit to our administration who saw an opportunity and capitalized on that opportunity, right? Where, you know, Carolina failed. I mean, Howard kind of moved in because we all know these things don't just happen overnight or in a single day. I mean, these were people putting an effort from the president to the provost on down. People were really um, in there making it happen. And so, I mean, that Howard hustle is showing up um, all over this, but I think um, the campus community is, is overjoyed. We are happy, um, ecstatic uh, to find folks of their caliber who are saying we're gonna we're gonna put our resources there because many people talk about it many people say i'll leave and not many people do it so i think it's uh it's going to be a fantastic um set of additions to to our already vibrant campus after the break we'll be back with our panelists niambi carter from howard university leah wright rigueur from johns hopkins university and jonathan wharton from southern connecticut state university when we return we get to the bottom of the debate about critical race theory i'm kalila brown dean stay with us I've read Mao Zedong, I've read, I've read Karl Marx, I've read Lenin, that doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend? 
And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers, of being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. That was four-star General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on Capitol Hill last month. He's resisted calls for his resignation after defending the teaching of critical race theory in our service academies. Today, we're joined by a panel of esteemed professors. Leah wright Regard is Associate Research Professor at Johns Hopkins University. Niambi Carter is Associate Professor of Political Science at Howard University. And Jonathan Wharton is Associate Professor of Political Science at Southern Connecticut State University. Coming up, we'll talk about voting rights and controversies surrounding race and the the Olympics. But first, I often joke that if you say critical race theory three times fast in the mirror, someone will appear to debate you and talk about why it's so problematic. I asked Leah wright regard to explain what critical race theory really is, why it's inducing panic and hysteria, and how it applies to the work she does in academia. So I love that, that you three times in a row and, you know, maybe Kimberly Crenshaw shows up, right? That would <laughs> be great because like she could actually educate people on what it exactly. means. Um, but I think one of the things first, I, I want to start off by saying this, this kind of hysteria or mass panic around critical race theory is not new. That it pops up roughly every five to 10 years and it has really done this since we've seen, you know, since uh, uh, we see it emerge out of law schools. Um, in the 1970s and 1980s. And by and large, the hysteria and panic around critical race theory isn't actually about critical race theory as it exists as a theory that is being taught in upper level law schools, but instead is about essentially the hysteria surrounding the trickle down effect of people that want to investigate race and racism and its byproducts and how it affects things um, at a much broader level. So it's really unsurprising, I think, in the aftermath of these George Floyd protests and the aftermath of a mass, you know, a, 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 a global pandemic for people, for the critical race theory um, hysteria to pop up again, because we have been, we have spent the last year asking ourselves really, really hard questions about race and inequality that previously the majority of people in the United States were content to just push to the side or ignore. But with the kind of onset of the pandemic, they could not turn away from, right? So again, somebody asked me the other day, they were like, well, what about Juneteenth, right? We got Juneteenth as a federal holiday. And I was like, actually, those two things are related, right? Because we get Juneteenth, because we get Juneteenth as a federal holiday, everybody says, look, we're done with the race question. So anybody who continues to talk about race must be engaging in critical race theory and must right, have some kind of agenda that hates America. We did this for you, now we don't have to do any more. And so what I like to point to for people is two things. One, critical race theory is a theory that emerges, again, during the 1970s, 1980s, Derrick Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Lanny Guineer, right? These people that are emerging from upper level law schools as a way to look into the law, to understand how discrimination continues to be perpetuated even after the passage of all of these civil rights bills and legislations and policies. So how does it continue to exist? They look into the law, right? to see how does this idea of colorblindness continue to pe perpetuate discrimination, even as we have explicit things in place to prevent 
theoretically prevent the uh, uh, discrimination and racism, right? So that's how it emerges. It is something that is by and large studied in upper level classrooms, right? My kids are not learning critical race theory in first grade and second grade and in their daycare. They're just not. And in fact, many of the people I think that have been labeled critical race theorists who have been kind of tossed out into the front of this discussion actually are not critical race theorists, right? They will say it with their own, in their own book. They're like, I do not do critical race theory. And it's actually in some ways kind of insulting to insinuate that they are critical race theory because critical race theorists, because it downplays the actual work of critical race theorists. Now there's one other area that I think the media really hasn't had the space to explore which is that critical race theory, when it's done well and when it's done right, does have a trickle down effect. It does, I think, change the way that we understand race and racism in America, right? So the reason, one of the reasons that we are able to understand things like the Tulsa massacre that happens, we just celebrated, we just you know, uh, uh, commemorated the 100th anniversary of that, is because we get to it through an understanding, this long work of understanding through that critical race theorists have done. But the kind of thing that is produced out of it that, that allows us to understand uh, the Tulsa uh, massacre or understand the significance of Juneteenth isn't critical race theory per se. But I think the idea of understanding race and racism is what really fires up people in opposition. They are scared. And then for a particular select few, it becomes a way of essentially feeding the base red meat and stirring up opposition so it becomes kind of a prime boogeyman of sorts in order to hurl everything that is confusing, that is uh, inspires fear, that signifies change around race in this country. Jonathan, that fear is palpable in multiple spaces, and it can lead to political decisions that often are not grounded in reality, but become reactionary to that fear, but can also be used as an electoral strategy. We've seen it in the backlash toward the 1619 Project. We saw it with the Trump administration banning diversity, equity, and inclusion training and programs. And you wrote about this in an op-ed about your approach to this. And you say, quote, just because I teach critical race theory does not make me a proponent of the approach. An economist may teach Marx, but it does not make them a communist. I offer to students that having many approaches and perspectives can be insightful. What does this debate mean to you in the work that you do, but also the the work that you do in the political space to say to people, let's have the conversation, let's have the debate, but let's do that based on facts and not fear? Part of it is that it's very political and it's being politicized, obviously. And so how does one go about explaining that to somebody who doesn't quite understand the nuances of law, let alone public policy? It's confusing. And it's unfortunate in many ways because uh, a lot of this is explained really within a vacuum. So, and, and of course, I think we recognize even in American politics now, we are in this era of, I'd like to borrow what my chairman likes to call it, you know, these kind of fiefdoms of tribalism. And so, you know, how do you find pathways of explaining some of these dynamics? I mean, this is really our role, right, as academics, is that we're trying our best to do this even in the space of the classroom. So I attempt to do it that way, as I explained there in my op-ed. Uh, and it's, by the way, it's not to say that it doesn't come with any controversy, right? Students will always kind of pick apart whatever theory or approaches I will go in terms of using or even incorporating or signing. It comes with the territory. 
We know this, even when we do assign critical race theory or, you know, God forbid if I get in my coalition politics building, because really that's what my research and writing is more about anyway. And that even gets a little controversial. So I think what I would stress is that it would be ideal, but we know this can happen so often in this era, if people had an open mind and have some perspective in recognizing that this is the point of an education, is for you to engage, to discuss and debate, whether you agree or disagree, it is at least a perspective among many. And so I would hope that many people would respect that. And that's the point of an education, is that you are to be at least as well-rounded, as well-versatile of these theories and approaches. Uh, whether you like it or not, but it does exist and it has persisted for a long time. Yambi, it seems like such a revolutionary thing that the purpose of education is to challenge you to think. You teach at an historically black university. You've taught at PWIs in the past. And one of the challenges I think that we need to address within this debate about critical race theory is dismissing the myth of a black monolith. This idea that all Black people think the same way and that because you're at an HBCU, everyone must be open to the same ideas or share the same perspectives. How does this debate show up for you, either in what you teach or how you teach, but the concern that many underrepresented faculty have of if I'm putting myself out there to take on these debates and controversies, now I put myself at risk for the things we talked about before when it comes to promotion or tenure or being supported to do their work. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a hard one because I think, you know, as Jonathan and, and Leah have rightly pointed out, I mean, our job is to bring to you things that you may not have heard of. And critical race theory is just talk about race, right, in common parlance. It's so far removed in the popular discussion from the academic and legal discussions that folks are having. But part of our job is to bring our students things that they hadn't heard before. And so usually what I tell students is you don't have to like it, right, but you have to contend with it. And I think that's much of what, you know, people call indoctrination, right? Um, and it's crazy because when you think about universities, they are some of the most status quo institutions you will ever interact with. But we are saddled with this sort of moniker that we are out here, you know, uh, teaching children to hate their country and all this other nonsense. But it is our job, I think, to challenge the traditional canon. Um, and I think at least part of you know, when I think about Howard University and what makes it special, you know, our motto is in truth and service. And I view theories like critical race theory among so many others, right? Social identity theory and all these other theories that exist out here as bringing that truth, right? In service of, of, of knowledge, right? In service of creating a sort of more just society. I think that's what the goal is. And when I think about my HBCU as a, at, at its founding, which was a, a multi- gendered, multiracial institution. And it is still that, even though it's a historically black college or university. I mean, the reason these places have to exist at all, right, is because these larger institutions of higher education will not allow black people to be educated. And so these are institutions that black people have been supporting for the purpose of educating their own with this idea, right, that education can be a bridge to this more just this more truthful, this more open, this more robust society, and really this more robust democracy. Because ultimately, when we think about education, education in service of politics is something that's been a long tradition in Black communities. And so I think, um, you know, when people come to HBCUs, I don't know what they think, but there is a niche for all kinds of kids. And I think even this idea that the faculty is all Black 
it's not true, right? Like not the faculty, not the administration, right? There is diversity on those campuses too. But I do think the space itself, right? At the core of that space is privileging black voices and black experiences. And that is different. And that means if you take seriously black people and what they have been saying about this country, then you have to take a different tack when talking about America, because America doesn't mean the same thing for all people. And I think that's sort of what this conversation is really exposing is that, um, you know, people have this notion of America that they want. And now that those people who've been minoritized and, and marginalized are speaking back, now there's sort of this concern yet again. And it, it's very reminiscent right, of, of sort of the, the busing debates, right, the, the segregation debates. It's let's hide our racist agenda, quite frankly, our resistance to the idea of, of, of integration behind this notion of states' rights and, and school choice, right? And I feel like this is very much that moment we're in. Let's hide sort of our resistance, right, to these challenges, to this kind of unitary notion of America and this sort of singular valence, right, that we have with talking about the truth um, under this sort of panic around critical race theory. Like I tell people all the time, very few people teach critical race theory outside of these academic settings. So it's not the thing. The thing is now that you have to take down the monuments, now that you have to start talking about racist police practices. Now that you have to start talking about things like voting rights and the ways in which we use race to disable people um, from taking uh, charge of their, their futures, right? Quite literally. Um, now critical race theory becomes the thing that we have to now waste our time explaining and explaining and explaining. Um, I mean, it's, it's Toni uh, Morrison's right idea that what racism does is it steals your time. And that's what we're finding. We're stealing time and having to talk about all of this when there are all of these other things that are still on the horizon that get left right on the table, off the table, because they've crafted the agenda such that we can't even have these larger, more robust conversations. After the break, we'll be back with our panelists, Niambi Carter from Howard University, Leah wright regard from Johns Hopkins University, and Jonathan Wharton from Southern Connecticut State University. We'll discuss voting rights and whether the Olympics need a racial reckoning. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. This year alone, 17 states have enacted, not just proposed, but enacted, 28 new laws to make it harder for Americans to vote. Not to mention, and catch this, nearly 400 additional bills Republican members of the state legislatures are trying to pass. The 21st century Jim Crow assault is real. It's unrelenting. And we're going to challenge it vigorously. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Earlier this week, President Biden laid out his plans to protect voting rights in the wake of Republican-led efforts to change rules around voting. In Texas, Democratic legislators left the state in an attempt to break quorum and stop votes on two election bills they consider 
voter suppression. They're heading to D.C. to demand better voter protections. Today, our political roundtable tackled some of this news, including voting rights. Our guests are Leah wright Rigger, Associate Research Professor at Johns Hopkins University. Niambi Carter is Associate Professor at Howard University. And Jonathan Wharton is Associate Professor at Southern Connecticut State University. In the last segment, we talked about the dangers of ignoring rather than confronting history. And this week marks one year since the passing of the late Congressman John Lewis. Lewis said, ours is not the struggle of one day, one week, or one year. Ours is not the struggle of one judicial appointment or presidential term. Ours is the struggle of a lifetime, or maybe even many lifetimes, and each one of us in every generation must do our part. I asked Leah wright Rigger what's at stake right now. So I, I do want to point out that I think in a lot of these cases, it's actually not a misunderstanding of history. It's a very, it's a very clear understanding of what's at stake and what history means. So it's a willful denial of the significance of, say, the 1965 Voting Rights Act or previous attempts to disenfranchise or successful attempts to disenfranchise voters of all races, of all backgrounds, right? Because as we think about what does voting represent in this country, voting in this country represents power. And so I think it's no mistake that in the aftermath of Barack Obama's victory, the kind of um, allegiance and alliance that coalesced around Barack Obama signified the potential for a new kind of political power, right? So a new kind of exercise of power that we've seen in points in the past, but that really coalesced in, in a way that elected essentially a black man to the presidency. And so it's no mistake that in the immediate aftermath of the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, right, that happens in 2013, we see the proliferation of these laws and these shifts that are directly targeted at limiting that kind of political allegiance and alliance and that, that kind of political power. I also don't think that it's any mistake that we see this in the aftermath of the 2016 election, we see an, a number of attempts to really limit voting rights that come about when it becomes clear that the elect, the president-elect in this case, did not win the popular vote. And that even as we say demographics is in destiny, that there's a shift in the way that people are voting in this country, right? That has the potential to really affect the outcomes of these different races. We see it in 2020, not only with the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, but with the election of Warnock and Ossoff in Georgia, right? Georgia goes blue. So I don't think it's a mistake that right as the day, the day that those, um, those uh, uh, votes are certified, there is an attack on the Capitol, right? Saying that this is not legitimate. People fundamentally understand what is at stake and what kind of power the vote holds, right? All of this is part of this longer trajectory. And so one of the things that I love about being a history professor is actually teaching introduction to modern African-American studies. The idea that this is new to them is something that they are deeply troubled by. And they emerge out of these classes, my classes, other people's classes saying, I need to do something about this. And I think one of the ways that we, I finally felt like I, I saw a transformation in the kind of work that I'm teaching. Historically, when I teach the Tulsa massacre, 
most of my students, I'd say 99% of my students, including the ones from Oklahoma, have never heard of it. This year was the first year that actually I th had a group of students who were like, I've heard of that. And I think part of the reason they had come to it is because it had become so ingrained in popular culture in the preceding years through the television show Watchmen, right, through the HBO show uh, Lovecraft Country, where people were now talking about this in concert with people who were doing work in politics and history about how this is a deeply significant historical moment that tells us something about democracy or the lack thereof in this country. Niambi, Leah reminded me all over again why I'm angry that Lovecraft Country was not uh, picked up for season two. So I'm waiting for another network to, to take it on because I think the ways that you can tell those stories and communicate to young people and to a wider audience is so critical. It begs this question. This week, we will recognize the one-year anniversary of the passing of the late Representative John Lewis, who literally gave his life to the cause of voting rights. What do you say to young people who say voting does not matter? These legislators are going to work to keep us from the polls. There are all of these questions about trust in government and whether we should do that. What do you say to young people? I say that's legitimate, right? I mean, we can't tell them, right, to not believe their eyes, right? They are here in the world and they see what's happening. All of these places that are trying to pass laws to disable people like them from voting, right? And we can't tell them that that doesn't matter. But what I tell my students often is this, the, the decision will be made whether you participate or not. So do you wanna be left out of the decision-making? And that can happen in its own way for a number of reasons. Gerrymandering, for example, is one of those things that keeps your vote from mattering. But what I tell people all the time is that, you know, voting rights and the quest for voting rights and the realization of voting rights is not a one election type of deal, right? This takes time. I mean, it was a century between 1865 and 1965, and there was a lot of failure and frustration in there but you don't give up, right? You might have to think about this as I tell people, think about voting as a complement to the suite of things that you can do, right? And I always empower people, I think we don't spend enough telling young people what's at stake in state and local elections because all of the things that we care about around voting rights are going to happen at the state level. That's where we are now. So what I try to tell students is you have to get in the game where the rules matter. And one of the places the rules matter is in your state legislature and in these gubernatorial elections. And I think to a certain extent, we have fetishized the presidential election to the point that we have forgotten about the states. And that's why we have a Republican electorate that is shrinking, right? I mean, it's not like Republican policies are becoming more popular, but they can still win elections if they can control the states. And they know this. They started down this track in 2010, which is how we get what we get in 2016. And it was brilliant, right? I mean, this is not to suggest that what the Republicans did didn't make sense. It made absolute sense. But that kind of strategizing that they're doing, we have to think about as well, right? I tell my students, you have to think about as well. So these people didn't go to the state because the national election don't matter. They go to the state because they can, if they can control the rules of the game at the state level, then they can control the outcomes of national elections. That was the point. So I urge my students 
to think about their local and state elections and think about themselves, even potentially as office holders. So you don't like those people? Well, nothing said that you had to get good and old to, to be an elected official, right? There, I mean, you can look at the mayor of Baltimore, right? We could talk about these young people that ran after the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, right? Who were really sort of um, stoked by the, the gun rights conversation, right? To, to push um, themselves into local elections, some successful, some not so much, but that doesn't mean you quit, right? I mean, cause the day you quit is the day you sort of seeded right, to, to, this, to this outcome. And I just tell people, um, so you didn't like that your person didn't win, right? You didn't like that your person didn't make it through. Well, the time to care about that is A, in the primary is not in the general. And two, your candidate may take a while to break through, right? I mean, that's the story of candidate after candidate after candidate. Sometimes they win, sometimes they lose, but they can change the game. Jesse Jackson in 84 and then again in 88 changed how we thought about Black folks in relationship to presidential politics. Jonathan, your whole face lit up the minute Niambi started talking about state and local politics. And I know that not just in your research, but in your applied public scholarship and the work you do, it is really about focusing in on how important those local decision-making entities are. What would you say would be a take-home point for our audience about affirming the importance of the rules, but also the agency that we have to make a difference at the local level? Well, I mean, as I think you all know, I do teach those classes. I am directly engaged, as you know. Um, but I was stressed that beyond even the voting booth, I think by volunteering, even donating money, right? I mean, and some of my students think that, oh, well, it's got to be hundreds of dollars. No, it doesn't. Uh, you know, it could be as simple as $20 for a fish fry or going to a coffee event or something like that. And I think it's even better when you bring along additional people so that the presence is known. You know, the unfortunate thing is going to Niambi's point there is that the numbers are really problematic in urban areas, um, even in places like uh, Bridgeport, which we know is overwhelmingly African-American Latino. The turnout there, you're lucky to get anywhere near 20, 30 percent in the primaries and even in the general election for mayor. So that speaks a lot to what do you do to get those numbers up? And so it's gotta be reminded that it's not just voting, but also it's directly engaging. It's canvassing, it's volunteering, it's donating, it's bundling when you get other people on board to also do that. So you can get the candidates to win and to support, you know, certainly a set of agenda concerns and issues and make it the forefront. I also want to add into it, certainly participating in primaries, because in a state like Connecticut, the primaries are closed. So you can't really do so much unless you're actually affiliated with the political party. It doesn't have to be the two big parties, by the way. It doesn't have to be always the Democratic or the Republican Party, right? It can certainly be even third parties. We know, for example, Working Families Party um, does exist in Connecticut, and they've had a presence in some urban areas. Um, and there's also, obviously, smaller parties, too, like Green Party and, you know, um, and even Libertarian Party. So there are pathways of doing this, but it's got to be a, a kind of a, an effort across the board where it's not just showing up to vote, but is also engaging and partaking in the other elements that make what politics is. 
So all of you have said that the rules of the game matter. And in our, our very last quick segment, I have to ask you about the Olympics because we're coming up on the Olympics and we're hearing lots of questions and debates about the rules. Are they fair? How do they apply? What's the American context? What's the international context? Leah, it's all over your face, but our listeners can't see it. So quickly, I'll start with you, Leah. What's your thought on the rules when it comes to these issues we've been talking about Um across the show. Oh man, I've just I've just been devastated by the Olympics. Uh, there's no it, it's very hard for me to be impartial at, because I'm an observer. I am somebody who is watching the Olympics and who is rooting for people and has also understands that there is a history of Olympics that has never been that has that has never been fair or satisfied with its black performers, let alone people who are black adjacent, right? And that this is really coming into focus in really powerful ways this year, although it has certainly have come into focus in the past. The first indication to me um, that, that something like this was going to be a different kind of Olympics was the, um, was the response that the, the phrase Black Lives Matter couldn't be uttered at the Olympics. So it wasn't even right all the, the dramatics that has happened subsequently, but this idea that we're not going to allow the, uh, the, the Olympics to be politicized by a statement that is inherently not political, right? It is a statement of life. But then seeing, right, I've also been a, a close watcher of Simone Biles' career and watching how various agencies have tracked her, have monitored her, have you know, used surveillance in order to corral her for being so much greater than everyone else. And now to see that she's going to be penalized if she engages in this kind of greatness was a moment of shock. And then of course, to see, you know, we've always been working towards this moment, um, this question of the intersection of cannabis and um, uh, the Olympic games has one that has been sitting on the wayside for a very long time. We saw a glimpse of it with Michael Phelps years ago, who was penalized in an off seat during the off season uh, for even being seen near weed. But now it's coming, I think, to fruition when we see Shikari Richardson, right? And like being penalized for something that we know that Olympic athletes engage with. The fact that Shikari Richardson got caught does not mean that other Olympic athletes do not indulge in marijuana. It opens up a lot of questions that of course the agency is going to have to come up with, that the, the, the Olympics as the rest of the world is moving in a different direction is going to have to reconcile. Unfortunately, it's Richardson who has to bear the burden of this. And of course the other athletes who didn't get caught. Niambi, quickly, you know me well enough to know my love for all things sports and pop culture. Are you watching the Olympics this year? And if so, what are you watching? Um, I probably won't be watching. Um, you know, usually if I do watch, the only thing I watch are track and field events, quite frankly. Um, I'm not a sports enthusiast, but I do think there is this is a moment, not just because of Shikari Richardson, but I mean, Allison Felix a few years ago, right? And all of these folks who, Cassis Amanya and who have been sort of put upon by the Olympic um, sort of committee, I think, you know, just thinking about the sort of sordidness of all of this, I don't want any part of it. And then I think just the sort of larger environmental and other kinds of issues that the, the Olympics visit on their host cities. I mean, the removal of poor people and that kind of thing. I just think it's, it's high time for us to sort of reckon with the Olympics 
um, and the way that we have these other institutions. Like lots of people use marijuana. There's no evidence that marijuana is a performance enhancing drug in any sport. So the idea that it will be a banned substance is about our politics and sort of who we want to say we are as a nation than about, you know, the sanctity of competition. And I think these testosterone tests and these other things that are just as arbitrary um, are, are damaging. And I think, you know, it's high time that the Olympic Committee has to answer for why, you know, this kind of swim cap that is developed for people with fluffier hair um, is unacceptable. So I won't be watching, unfortunately. Jonathan, quickly, will you be watching the Olympics this year? Oh, I have no choice but to. Uh, you know, my family, especially my father and my brother are athletes, and especially my father, since he nearly qualified for the Olympics, he missed it by a quarter second, if I remember correctly, for the 400. So I do watch a lot of the track and field. I am curious to see what will take place. I guess for me, though, I'm more interested in terms of during the pandemic, right, this whole notion of how is Tokyo and other cities going to be hosting and dealing with this in terms of actual public participation or lack thereof. So I'm probably more intrigued by that than anything else, because, you know, this is an unusual time. And how do you carry out something like this so international? I guess, quite frankly, for me, I was surprised they're trying to pull this off. I didn't think they were going to do this at all. I really didn't. So for me, I'm kind of still in shock that they're, they're attempting to do this. So I'm going to be kind of watching from afar, just a bit more curious about the public health concerns and issues that surround that more than anything. Thanks to our panelists, Jonathan Wharton from Southern Connecticut State University, Leah wright Regur from Johns Hopkins University, and Niambi Carter from Howard University. Disrupted is produced by Jane Scoble-Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. Our interns are Kelly Langevin and Macy Carvalho. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.